Welcome back to Presenting the Past, a podcast series exploring the digitized collections of public radio and television in the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, otherwise known as the AAPB. I'm Christine Becker, Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Television, and Theater at the University of Notre Dame, and co-host of the ACA Media Podcast from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. The AAPB website features over 66,000 items streaming online, and this podcast brings you conversations with the researchers, scholars, educators, and media producers who have used that archival material, and they share their insights about what they have found, or created in this case. My guest for this episode is John L. Hansen, producer and host of the nationally syndicated radio series In Black America, the only nationally broadcasted black-oriented public affairs radio program in the United States. The series' weekly home base is Austin, Texas radio station KUT, and the weekly podcast of In Black America is one of KUT's most popular podcasts. Just a little background on what we'll hear more about today. John L. Hansen's love of radio started in his hometown, Detroit, and then upon his high school graduation, he traveled to Austin, Texas for college and began hosting a popular nightly program of jazz and soul music on a small radio station there. He was hired by KUT Radio in 1974. And after receiving a minority training grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting in 1977, he set up a public affairs program for KUT focused on improving and increasing information about the black community. He was ultimately promoted to the role of producer of In Black America in 1980. He retired from KUT in 2011, but has continued to work on In Black America. And most pertinent to this particular podcast, the In Black America collection on the AAPB website is made up of 745 episodes, which were preserved and digitized in 2019, thanks to a Recordings at Risk grant from the Council on Library and Information Resources. There are hundreds of interviews spanning uh, from 1981 to 2004 with influential members of the black community in conversation about issues and topics pertaining to black America, including education, health, style, economics, social issues, families, culture, literature, and politics, and featuring interviews with artists, athletes, civil rights leaders, teachers, politicians, business people, and social scientists. So I would like to welcome to the Presenting the Past podcast, John L. Hansen. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you. There are so many things to talk about, both in the collection and in, across your career. And I want to uh, actually go back to the radio beginnings for you. And I'm intrigued by your move from Detroit to Austin. And your bio says you were, you know, had a love of radio right from the start. So I'm, in, yes. I'm interested in this sort of a, a big move in two relatively different places, Detroit to Austin. So I'm curious, actually, like then what kind of continuity radio provided you? So what did you find in radio in Detroit? And then what did you find and start to build in Austin? I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was just something about radio that captured my imagination at a very young age. Of course, growing up, trying to be a good child, I had to go to bed at a regular time about 8, 8.30. Well, anyone knows at 8, 8.30, nobody's going to sleep at 8, 8.30. <laughs> so I used to listen to the radio a lot, and I just became enamored with the announcers at that time. And that kind of fueled my interest in it. I was one of them kids that when we went on uh, trips, I was always looking for the radio towers. I don't know why, but I always was looking for radio towers when we were traveling along the highway. And that just more instilled my my imagination of radio. Hmm. And then I used to imitate when I was in junior high and high school, some of the radio announcers. They were on the air at the time and doing football practice and, and basketball practice. Instead of using my own voice, I always used to imitate the radio announcers at the time. 
And all my friends uh, got a kick out of it. So then I went to work. They had uh, came up with an idea for a person to come on the air and read the scores of basketball games and what happened in different high schools around the country. So that's how really I got started in radio at WJLB Radio uh, in Detroit. And it just took off from there. And so then you went down to Austin for college. And then how did you then pursue radio as a regular pursuit after that? Lucky enough, one of my best friend's girlfriend uh, lived in Lockhart, Texas. It's a small town about 30 miles south of Austin. And she said the radio station in her hometown was looking for an announcer. So I went down and talked to the gentleman. And they were looking for an announcer, but also they had to have the announcer pay for the program. So a good friend of mine who was an entrepreneur in Austin underwrote my radio program. He had a record store called Popsy's Record Shop. His name was William Curtis, bless his soul. And he underwrote my program. And in 1970, that's how I got started uh, in radio in Texas. At KHRB, I will never forget that small radio station in Lockhart, Texas. And from there, I navigated to KUT Radio, and I applied like four years in a row from 1970 to 1974 when they initially hired me to do uh, Solon FM, which was a music program. And what was the, the breakthrough after the fourth time? Why did they finally then realize you had the, the skills that you did? That is a good question, and I can't ask that individual because he no longer works there. But I guess, you know, the fourth time was a charm. That's right. Just keep trying, right? <laughs> yes. When you don't just say, if you don't succeed, you know, try, try again. That's what I kept doing. Right. Well, and especially when you know what you want and when you know what you yes. want to do. I, I teach students who want to work in film and television and it's a hard business and it's difficult. And there's going to be a lot of rejection. But yes. if they know that's what they want to do, I tell them that's the passion that will carry you through all those rejections. Exactly. And like you say, I mean, if you want to do it bad enough, you'll keep trying to your no becomes a yes. Well, and then you began uh, working on In Black America and, and in the producer position. So what aims and goals did you have for it? And I'm curious about like things that you brought that were changes to the program or things that were already in place that you wanted to make sure remained um, continuous. What happened with the show once you became the producer? Prior to me accepting the challenge, the program was produced by an, a plethora of different hosts. And then the last set of hosts were academicians. And if one could imagine academicians talking to academicians, I mean, you can get lost in the language. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. I host a podcast that does exactly that. So I know, I know what you're talking about. So when they approached me, well, let me, let me start off. When I was doing the, the, the music program, Soul on FM, another African-American radio station came online and management thought that my program wasn't particularly necessary. Uh, and then they made another point. I could have a bigger impact nationally doing In Black America than I could have just locally doing Salon FM. Mm -hmm. So what I said, well, if the program is going to be In Black America, it actually has to reflect In Black America. At the time, the majority of the interviews and, and the program was basically centered around the University of Texas. 
and the African-Americans who came to lecture or whatever was all Austin, Texas or Texas based. So I said, well, if it's going to be in black America, let's reflect what the title actually entails is in black America. So what I suggest is to give me a, a travel budget and I will go out in the country and interview individuals. And my thought process is then as it is now. The only thing they can tell me when I request an interview is no. And that picked up. And surprisingly, the first interview I ever conducted for In Black America was with Yolanda King, Dr. King's daughter. And I had to travel to San Marcos, Texas. She was part of, a, as a matter of fact, a Black History Month program that they had on campus. So that's how I became the producer and host of In Black America back in in the spring of 1980. Despite the gains made by blacks in the civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of equality is still only a dream, says Yolanda King, daughter of the late civil rights leader. Although her father was able to move us closer towards the kingdom of God, Blacks and other Americans are still living under a system of government that is perpetuating the chain of poverty, spending more money on the military than education. This week, Yolanda King in Black America. From Communication Center, the University of Texas at Austin, this is In Black America. Discussions of the Black Experience in Contemporary American Society. With this week's program, here's your producer and host, John D. Henson. Yolanda King, actress, teacher, and now civil rights activist, is the daughter of the late Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Ms. King is also a director of the Martin Luther King Center for Social Change in Atlanta. Throughout your travels, have the condition for black Americans changed since the beginning of the civil rights movement in the early 60s? Oh, by all means. Many people feel that we've regressed and perhaps to some extent we have stagnated, stagnated in the last 10 years, um, the last decade. But the, <laughs> the South is a completely different world now than when I was a child. And uh, there doesn't take much to, to see that. And there are certainly more black faces uh, in, in, in high places. And that is very good. Uh, and we cannot uh, not acknowledge that. Uh, we have to affirm that and, 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 and be very proud about that. But the fact of the matter is that the masses of, of our people are still locked out of the system. And uh, that is, is where the work uh, is still left to be done. I assume then you do one interview and then you do the next and then the word starts spreading and then probably then are people coming to you then to ask to be interviewed? Surprisingly, now it is much, 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 much easier. Uh -huh. Now I have now I have the opportunity to pick and choose instead of, you know, all right, who, who, 
who am I going to interview this week or who can I, I contact? So I guess after 40 years, <laughs> going on 50, the, the job has come much easier. I mean, the problem now is selecting who I'm going to interview and how I'm going to fit it in, all the requests that I have. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the most memorable from those 40 or 50 years. But I'm curious if any interviews still resonate with you today or you think might resonate with audiences, either than what was going on in the moment or things that someone could listen to today and it could be just as relevant uh, to the conversation today. It's surprising that you say that. I look at each interview as significant as the previous one that I did. What I try to do each week and what my mindset is, this is the last interview I'm going to ever do. Wow. So I'm going to put as much effort into that interview as if it was the last interview that I, I would do. And over the years, each interview is special. And one interview, in my mindset, is no more significant than, than the other interview. So I couldn't really pick out one significant interview, but one interview that really stands out, and I always talk about it, is the interview I had with Aretha Franklin. That was a tough interview to come by. During the early 80s, the But Why the Superfest had a traveling concert series. And the concert series traveled to a plethora of cities around the country. It came to Dallas at the Dallas Cotton Bowl. And if anyone has ever been in Texas in July and August, it is not a good place to be outside. So the trailer in which Aretha Franklin was assigned to, the air conditioner broke. Mm. So it was a steam bath in there. And she was not a happy camper. So she had already committed to doing the interview. But once she got to Dallas, you know, the attitude changed. And I, I can respect that. It's hot in there. Right. And she's the headliner. So she's sitting in that dressing room for a number of hours. So I told the manager. And he came back and said, well, Aretha's not feeling well. And maybe we need to postpone it. Well, then I told the manager that my grandmother was a member of her dad's church. And that was the kicker. Once he came back and told her that his grandmother was a member of her church, then she agreed to do the interview. And, and that was really one of the highlights of, of my career thus far. But also the other interviews I've had, when I interviewed Maynard Jackson, and he had just become, I think, the mayor of Atlanta. And he talked about the significance of him becoming mayor and him being mayor also afforded better opportunities for minority business owners. And then he talked about the, the building of the Hartfield Airport and African-Americans having an opportunity to, to have their particular uh, stores in the airport and how that meant uh, so much to the African-American citizens of Atlanta. Another interview that, that strikes me when I interviewed Muddy Waters, and he talked about his career and coming up from the Mississippi Delta and, and living in Chicago and how he had began to live some of the good lives. Ever since I remember my, my own body, I've been trying to sing 
uh, uh, blues from a, a kid, three years old. Uh, uh, my grandma raised me. She said I used to go and and, and get out to little pains and things and and, and you know and, and sit down and, pep, pep, and, and do my little singing with it, you know. And it must have been when I was about seven. I was trying to do what this young man do, Tim Wilson from the Thunderbirds. He played harmonica. I was not seven. I was trying to learn how to play harmonica myself. And when I became 17, I switched into guitar. So I've been trying to do it all of my life. Did you have any formal musical training in playing harmonica or the guitar? Uh, no. Um, there's one guy named Johnny Brown. He was so good right there where we was. And I just wanted to play the harmonica. And I, everything I did, I kind of self-taught myself, you know. Uh, I sit around and play my guitar, and let's go out to the Saturday night fish fry and listen to the, the boys with the guy I was playing. I then come back and get my guitar and, and try to do it, you know. And the same thing with the harmonic. Then I, I tried to do the same thing with the harmonic, and I just learned myself whatever I know. Most of what I know, I learned it myself. What did Muddy Waters do before he became a blues singer? Well, he was always the blues singer, but he had some else to do. I, I lived on the plantation and I had to go out there and, and share crop with everybody else. But I still sung my blues out there. I sung, I sung so many good blues. A lot of songs I put on records. I, I made them up behind uh, a mule and a plow. And finally I got a chance to put them on record. And then I got an opportunity to interview B.B. King. We talked about, you know, why did he name his guitar Lucille? And, and then we talked about, you know, I got a talk, chance to talk to Lerone Bennett, who was historian and, and writer for Ebony Magazine, and how covering the civil rights movement uh, affected uh, his life and how it changed and how Ebony covered the, the civil rights movement. And I can go on and on. I mean, it's just been, like you said, no one thought back in 1970 one, probably that this program will have such longevity to think about preserving the, the, the early interviews that, that took place. And that's what's so important about archiving. You know, you mentioned, so like the 745, you're on every one of those, but for what, you know, whoever is on episode 538, that's exactly. that, that one person's interview. That's that one person's chance to get that platform. So it's so important for not just to have the interviews, but I think to to pre preserve those. And you never know who out there wants to listen to it and who can benefit from listening to it, which raises another question I'm intrigued by. You thinking in terms of your listeners, the idea of who's out there. Now, I assume, you know, for myself, like oftentimes in an interview, I just get soaked up and I'm just having a conversation one on one. Mm -hmm. But there's also recognition, especially with a show that's lasted as long as yours, that you have an audience out there. So any thoughts about the audience and who you're trying to get information out to? Basically, my, my mantra is to educate and be educated. And what I try to do week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out is to provide as much information as possible for individuals to make an intelligent decision on you know whatever the, the issues may be. The other thing is, is that I try to present to the listeners, and particularly young listeners, that if you can see it and hear it, you can achieve it. And I find it amazing that we're living in the 21st century and we're still having firsts. Think about that. We're still having first of African-Americans doing whatever. 
And I just think that is just totally insane. But that's just the, the nature of, of where we are. So with that in mind, you know, I interview individuals who are, who are doing first. But the other thing is that it's not about me. You know, I don't have to hear myself. It's their stories. And I'll let them tell their story to the best of, of their ability. But to try to disseminate as much information where you can make a, a conscious decision on what is right, what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, but also what is achievable uh, in your lifetime. I'm also intrigued then that as you're hoping to reach young viewers and that's mm-hmm. a lot of years that you've been. So there's a lot of people who were young at one point and, and are older, <laughs> not to make you feel old or anything, but, um, yeah. but so within that long scope, then what perspective you have, and as you said, we keep having first or some of the same topics keep coming up or, mm-hmm. you know, some of those topics change. So any kind of long scope thoughts about continuities and changes you've seen both in the show and then in black America I think the the continuity, there's certain things that I try to articulate on a yearly basis. And most of those issues have to do with injustices and health. I try to hammer home, particularly, you know, at my age, uh, prostate cancer, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, AIDS, those particular subjects on a year-in, year-out basis, because I want to remind folks that these are serious health issues. Because I have friends, you know, I ask them, well, when the last time that you had a PSA test? Oh, well, I'm not going to have a PSA test. I said, man, people are dying from this. You need a PSA test. You're 70-something years old. There's no way you can tell me you have that to have a PSA test. I mean, things like because it becomes personal, because I know individuals who've died from it, and you had individuals that just blowing off as being cavalier or nonchalant about it. Well, this is a certain health problem, particularly the African-Americans, that we need to pay attention to. So those type of things are, are universal. Year in, year out, then I'm going to probably touch base on those particular issues. What I've done recently that has really jogged my memory, and it took some of my friends who are financial planners about financial literacy, how the wealth gap has particularly grown over the years and is still growing, and what we need to do, particularly my generation, uh, which is the baby boomers, but also passing that knowledge down to our children and grandchildren that at some point we need to start accumulating more wealth. These are the things that you need to put in place to sustain accumulating generational wealth. So those type of conversations I've been having recently with my audience and guests that I've I've selected for the program. Well, and it connects back to what you said before about the notion of it's a podcast about about knowledge, about education, and knowledge is power. And part of communicating and conveying that is, you know, helping to equip people with with the knowledge that they need to themselves become powerful in their own lives. And especially mm-hmm. you as a figure that again over across all these years, it's kind of an immense responsibility and trust that listeners have in you and that information that that you provide. And again, nationwide, not just in Austin. I guess after so many years, there is a level of trust. And I try to be as truthful as possible. And like I say, each interview is done with, with a level of respect and a level, a level of due diligence. Now is much easier. Uh, when I first began doing the program, 
all the information that I ascertained, I actually had to physically go to the library mm. <laughs> and read through books and, and magazines and periodicals. But now, you know, I can sit here in my home office or when I was in the studio and just click on Google Bing and, 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 and it's right there, which is a blessing and a curse because you get to a point where, all right, how much information is enough? But the other thing is that when you go to certain sites, certain sites, particularly with dates, which I find interesting, some sites have one date, another site have another date, and then I actually have to call an individual, call a, a, a reliable source, or which date is correct here. So the internet can be a powerful tool to use, but it also uh, you need to be skeptical about some of the information that you find floating out there. <laughs> yeah, which again, thinking in terms of things going on now, the notion of misinformation and, and, exactly. and having to be media literate and what you're finding. And again, like the responsibility then that you would have of to what information to pass on, what you know, how to vet it and so forth. Like that's a very different world than, as you said, 40 years ago. And the other thing I try to do is during the interview, I want to provide context how do we get to this particular place in time? What transpired prior to we're having the conversation? And is the situation better, worse, or has it not changed at all? Well, especially, you know, progress isn't a straight line. And so that's... Exactly, you know, exactly. Um, when I was looking through the list of, of episodes, I saw the one on... The topic was Blackhead Coaches, the interview with Nolan Richardson. Oh, that was... That, that timely was, again. <laughs> <laughs> now, that was an interesting interview because when Mr. Richardson was named coach at Arkansas, and I guess, you know, God is good. The next week or two weeks, well, within that time span... Uh, they were scheduled to play the University of Texas. And I reached out to Mr. Richardson, and he was gracious to have uh, me interview him. And, of course, you know, we, we, you know, we talked about the significance of her being a coach and the trials and tribulations that he had to undertake to uh, get to that position. And I was so happy when Arkansas eventually won the NC2A basketball championship, and, and was just grateful for him. But the other thing was, although Mr. Richardson had broke barriers and achieved so much in his basketball career, it was another 10 years before he was actually recognized for the achievements at the University of Arkansas. I am saying, this is just insane. But Mr. Richardson was gracious enough, and I knew a lot was on, uh, weighing heavy on his mind. And me coming, and this was like prior to the game. It was like maybe it was maybe a couple of hours prior to the game. So I know he's thinking about the basketball game and he got this young Turk, you know, wanting to come to interview him talking about things that, that happened in the past. And, you know, how does it feel? Which is, I think is really dumb question when he asks athletes, uh, athletes, you know, how does it feel to be the first black coach and all that? Well, he was gracious enough to give me an answer and, and allow me to, intruding some of his time that he probably would have spent uh, thinking about how he was going to beat the University of Texas that night. I also want to reflect a little bit on the notion of the platform and in particular uh, mm -hmm. KUT, NPR, public media, and that being a space and a, an extremely valuable space of providing this kind of, of education for the country. So could you speak a little bit about those those platforms and what 
public media gives you? Well, let me just start with In Black America came about, if anyone well, our age probably have a good idea, came about from the Kerner Commission when they had the riots in 67 and 68. And the Kerner Commission came out that we were living in two Americas, one black and one white. And another component of that analysis was that there was a lack of people of color in the media. If there were individuals of color in the media, they usually had the weekend shift. They were weekend anchors or things of that matter. So Judon Boney, who was the original producer and host of In Black America, was a student at the University of Texas. And he came to the College of Communications uh, wanting to do black programming. There weren't any. And his proposal was In Black America, which was the talk show, Soul on FM, which is the music program that I took up in, in 74, and Black America Sun, which was the TV program. Well, back then, and people well, won't remember, radio stations had an obligation to, to air public affairs programming. Usually that happened early Sunday mornings or late Saturday night. Well, Bill Jordan, who was the program director at that time, came up with a good idea. The University of Texas had all these programs that they produced locally but also there were other programs that were produced in, in other radio stations, WBH, WHYY in Philadelphia, that needed a national exposure. So he came up with the Longhorn Radio Network. Long story short, he gathered all these programs and offered it to other radio stations that needed to have public affairs programming that they could air that would have been less expensive if they had to produce them on their own. Okay. In Black America, as part of that series, and I truly believe that public radio offered a unique opportunity for programs like that for the simple fact that commercial radio is in the business to make money. Anytime you air a program, I don't care what time of day it is, there's a dollar cost to that particular program. We could be selling airtime for this program. Well, if you put on a talk show, the average talk show is going to be at least 20, but back when I started doing it was 25 minutes. And you really don't want to cut up a talk show program with commercials because you lose the continuity of the conversation. Public radio provides that connectivity where you can have a conversation without interruption. And I think if public radio was not in existence, we would be, as a society, the biggest losers uh, for that simple fact. So public radio, regardless of what you know, people say, it leans to the left, leans to the right. What it does is provide an avenue or form for intellectual interchange to take place without an interruption. And if people don't realize that having a conversation without interruption is most advantageous to a civilized society, that's what I think. <laughs> well, and then the other part of it is the motivation is public service. It's public interest. And so it's not exactly. to, to earn revenue back. It's to serve the public in ways that you've described here. And and I guess that's why public is in public radio. <laughs> <laughs> and as we wind down this interview, any final thoughts to add? It's all about communication. What I found 
is that I'm a news watcher and I'm a news listener. And sometimes I get irked. I mean, we've gone whole day, we've gone a whole week, and there's nothing about an African-American achievement or, or contribution. I find that insulting. We can go a whole day, a whole week without having any uh, significant stories that are uplifting about the African-American community. And I think in Black America provides that oasis in the desert. That's what mm. I call it. <laughs> that we are out there achieving and striving and making a contribution to the betterment of mankind. And I think that needs to be recognized on a daily and weekly basis. <laughs> and putting more people like you in these kind of positions to allow people to recognize that, because that's part of it as well. I always show my students the, you know, the whiteness at the head of, of studios. Like, and you show the, just like the pictures of the executives all in charge in the studios, and it's... And it's right. And, and, and as you say, that in an example, there was a caption, and it, it, and it was a news story. And on, it was Samuel Jackson and Denzel Washington. That's what it was. And the Chiron had Samuel Jackson's picture with Denzel Washington under his name. And it said that only happens when you don't have people of color in the room. When you don't know, you don't know, and it shows. Those are the type of things that take place when you don't have people of color in the room making the decisions or at least correcting the the, the mistakes that individuals make. And it is more than just a factual error. It's a notion of the fact that it matters, right? That that matters. Exactly, exactly. And then the other thing is that, I mean, we have all these resources. What would have taken five to 10 minutes to make sure that the picture that you have and you're gonna show is not like something that, and you know, these newscasts just don't pop up out of the blue. There is a process to make sure the picture that you have or whatever that is factually correct. And no one took it upon themselves to make sure that what you're seeing is absolutely correct and not just taking it from granted that, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. I'm, this is who this person is, when it wasn't. Well, and then I think it's just a final reflection, then this is also reminding me of the importance, again, of archiving and putting these you know, episodes in the yeah. AAPB for people to go back to, for future researchers to go back to, for future radio hosts to go back to. So um, we're really grateful for the work that you've done, and I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to go into the collection now and, and hear more of your interviews. And speaking of the collection, I, I want to give the, you all kudos. There are interviews that I had done and had forgotten about. In recent months, there have been individuals who've reached out to us to use some of that information. And case in point, they're getting ready to do the fugitive anniversary of Shaft, which is uh, a movie. And the people who are going to reissue that uh, obviously did their due diligence. They found an interview that I had done with Gordon Park Sr. back in the day and they wanted to ascertain uh, some of that information from the interview. So uh, you all came up with a good idea. <laughs> all hail AAPB. Yes, yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us and helping to inform us about your work. And good luck with uh, more of the work to come. Well, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate you all reaching out to me. And uh, God bless.
And listeners can check out all the interviews we've touched upon here, plus many, 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 many more in the In Black America collection on the American Archive of Public Broadcasting website, AmericanArchive.org. And you're able to check out all of that thanks to Laura Willis at KUT, because she was the one who spearheaded the preservation effort of In Black America. The project would not have happened without her, so we're really grateful to her. We are also grateful to you, the listeners, for being a part of this episode of Presenting the Past. I'd also like to thank sound engineer Todd Thompson at the University of Texas at Austin for his post-production work on this podcast and for composing our theme music. Thank you to Bill Kirkpatrick at the University of Winnipeg for his assistance with distributing the podcast. And thank you to Rinmar Casey and Casey Davis Kaufman at GBH for their help with planning and organizing these podcasts. Please join us next time for another deep dive into the digital resources of the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. 